morning. Ah, I'm on first. That's good. Um, so, my name's Josh, in case we haven't met. Um, let me tell you a little story. About two years ago, I became a father. Uh, my wife gave birth to our daughter, Aria, on June 30th, 2016. And so began this journey that I knew I couldn't be totally prepared for, but i gotten some really good advice from a lot of parents I know and some so-so advice from non-parents. But overall, I felt pretty ready. Ha. Uh, I knew it wouldn't be perfect. I knew that. But there was a moment in which I truly felt like the worst parent in the world. And it came when I was getting ready, uh, Aria ready for bed, bed one night. So she was at the stage where she was beginning to crawl uh, and pull up on things and roll around everywhere. So I knew I had to be really wary and careful when changing her on our changing table. You know, one that's three feet off the ground. So I'm changing yet another nasty poop diaper, and I go to turn and I have a hand on her and throw it out in our diaper genie. It's the one you have to like push it down in there. And I go to push it down in there, and it's full. Awesome. So for like three seconds, I have to pull the other hand off of her and like finagle it and shove it down in there. And some of you have already guessed what happened. Uh, my firstborn child, the one that we had prayed for for years and waited for and cherished so much, rolled and fell three feet straight down, head first, towards these beautiful hardwood floors that we were really excited for when we moved into this house. But my newly founded dad or ninja skills and reflexes were starting to kick in. I managed to grab a leg and by miracle not rip it off, which then minimized, <laughs> minimized the head to floor contact, thankfully. So then cue the freaking out, the crying, and the general hysterics from me. Uh, then my wife runs in, and the baby's crying, and I'm freaking out and shaking from the terror that I just damaged my child for the rest of their life. My wife is never going to forgive me. The world is over, and I'm going to go to child for danger, child endangerment. And, oh, breathe, okay. She was okay. I was okay. No one was damaged for the rest of their life. But it is slowly, starting from that moment probably, becoming more and more clear to me that I'm not going to be the perfect dad that I'm going to mess up, I'm going to let her down, probably drop her a couple more times, and I know that everyone here either is or has had an imperfect father. And this is, can be sometimes why it's really hard to talk about God being our father, because we've all had a different experience with our earthly father. And we inevitably base our interactions and our view of God the Father on that relationship, or maybe lack thereof. And Maybe you've had that dad that never said, I love you, but maybe just expected you to know it. Or maybe your dad left you when you were young. Maybe you've had an amazing dad, and you still have him today. Maybe your dad died, and you always longed to get to spend more time with him. Or maybe you wish you'd never known your dad. See, every one of us brings a unique view of what a father is, or maybe he should be, or what we wished he would have been. Today, I want to talk about how God is a better father than we think he is that he's not there to criticize us. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to leave us hoping to gain his approval. See, he has done and he will do everything he can to show how much he loves us, how much he cherishes us. And while, yes, it does sometimes hurt, he wants us to grow. So I want to invite you to stand and sing with us today to celebrate God the Father and that no matter what kind of dad that we have had, God is a better father than we think he is. You sing with us. So this is our final week in our Easter Tide series called Monday Messiah. For the last couple of months, actually, we've been talking about what 
difference Jesus makes in our everyday lives. And for the last three weeks, we've been zeroing in on the Trinity. What does it mean to say that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all wrapped up in one God? So two weeks ago, we spent Pentecost talking about the Holy Spirit, and last week talking about Jesus the Son. So naturally, we're concluding with God the Father this week. We're going to be in John's Gospel for one final week, so you can turn with me to John chapter 5. And we've got the page number and everything up on the screen for you, if you get one of the Bibles in the back there. So whether you've been raised in church or not, there's a fairly good chance that you've heard about God the Father, how wonderful He is, and how He really is the true Father to us all. But then you may have also heard about how God is a just God, and He's going to pass judgment on us all. And then we also hear about how God is a merciful God, and that's why He sent Jesus down to us. And what we find in the book John is actually Jesus is saying all of these things about His Father. And sometimes it can feel like the Bible's picture of God the Father is maybe as confusing or convoluted as our own view. But what we really need in this situation is some context. We have to understand the people that Jesus is talking to and what it meant to be a father in Jesus' time. So to do that, we need to look back and see that their entire culture, the entire government structure and how it was set up at that time was completely different from ours. The society of the Jewish nation, they were based on a patriarchy. Don't groan too much. But a patriarchy is a society in which the oldest male of the family is the one in charge. The men hold most, if not all, of the power in that situation. So within the family, that means when a son gets married, the wife then comes to live with him and his family in their house. And as they have kids and the family grows and they get big enough, they build more houses and it kind of becomes a compound. And in that compound, the father, or the oldest male, the patriarch, is in charge of making sure that everyone in that compound is taken care of. That means ensuring that there's enough food, enough water, shelter for everybody, clothing, and that they're kept safe from predators and enemies. And when you get a group of these families with their compounds and their patriarchs together in an area, you have a tribe that's formed. So not surprisingly, uh, that means that the heads of those families, the patriarchs of each family, makes up the elders of the tribe, and they preside over the disputes, they set the laws, they ensure the safety, and if needed, they enact any punishments. So that was their initial form of government. That's what they're used to. We're a democracy where we elect people uh, to pass and force and adjudicate laws to keep our society running, whereas in a patriarchy, all of that do is done just by by the eldest males of the families that made up that tribe. So in that society, a father, in a way, was a president, a senator, a judge, and the role of a dad all wrapped up in one. So what's really important to note is that your whole identity as a person in that culture was wrapped up in your father, in that lineage that you've come down from. And like every system, though, like our system, uh, communism, every government has cracks in it. And patriarchy obviously has cracks in it. And the people who fell through that crack was the, were the orphans and the widows of that time. See, without a patriarch to claim you to be part of the household, you were essentially a nobody. There was no welfare system there to care for them. It, and it's as though you were kind of just invisible to the whole system. And this is why the early church and the prophets hundreds of years before them were so insistent and preached so much about caring for the widows and orphans. And that came straight from God. And that sheds light on God the Father and who he is. That no matter what social system is in place, God wants his people to focus in on the most vulnerable and overlooked in their society. See, God's the kind of father who doesn't want anyone left out. 
Now, let's compare this system to today. Now, we live in a bureaucratic government system. It's wonderful. This is where the government has dedicated systems in, uh, and organizations in place that manage and take care of those in need. They pass the laws, they protect its citizens, they provide food and shelter for those who don't have that. And in our current system, the role of a father is really limited to just providing for his immediate family, uh, and oftentimes just his wife and kids. But sadly, even now, nowadays, many times, it seems as that role has become optional. Plus, nowadays, we also elect officials that pass the laws. They hire people to enforce them and appoint judges to adjudicate them. So when we call God the Father, it feels so different than it did for them back then. See, when Jesus talked about God the Father, they would see that as being the authority, the protector, the provider, and the one whose job it was to make sure everyone in his house was taken care of. Yet, oftentimes, when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about God being three in one. That God is one essence, one core, but three people. We have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're unified in heart and mind. But I remember growing up, and sometimes still today, that it felt like God the Father was like the separate being from the other two. It kind of felt like Jesus was that rebellious son that just wanted to go out and love everybody. And God was sitting back, the, the old school stern father, just waiting for people to meet up to his standards. But that, that view that I have, um, it doesn't jive with what Jesus says. And it's totally contrast or contradictory to what the Trinity is. See, Jesus talks many times about he and the Father being one. And we can read now in John 5, 19 through 21. He says this. Jesus, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. And even more passionately, on the night before Jesus is executed, Jesus prays this prayer that reveals so much about his relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, and what's at the core of the Trinity. In John chapter 17, he's pouring out his heart to God the Father about everything that he wants for his disciples then and us today. We can read in verse 20 here. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so, that, uh, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So you see, at the heart, at the core being of the Trinity, it's love. And that affects all three people in the Trinity. And that love is what drove God the Father to send Christ to restore the relationship with us. It's why the Holy Spirit was imparted to us to empower us and help us grow in our faith. 
See, God is not waiting for us to meet up to his expectations. He's actually actively and eagerly seeking to restore and build a relationship with us. So if God wants everything to just be love and happiness, then it kind of feels like, why all this judgment talk? Why are there so many verses that talk about God being the righteous judge? Well, here's one of my favorite parts about this whole thing, and that I learned through this, this study, is that how we understand judges today, that cold, distant thing, that's not how the Israelites would have seen them. So nowadays, when you get a ticket from Mike, or um, you commit a small crime, hopefully, you go before a judge, and they know nothing about you, who you are, your life story, or what brought you in front of them that day. All that judge, he or she knows, is that they have a set of laws that they have to enforce, and they have to enact justice blindly and dole out a punishment according to the crime. Now, imagine you're in that situation again, but instead of one judge, you have maybe two, three, or four. And these judges are made up of your father and the fathers of all your closest friends that you've known for years. You now have judges. You have people who have a long and deep relationship with you. And in the end, they're really just trying to enact a punishment that will help you learn to become better. See, this is the type of judge that those listening to Jesus would have been used to for generations. Not ones that are cold and distant and impersonal, but ones who they have had a relationship for years. Judges that are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, that are concerned with restoring them to a whole and flourishing relationship with the whole community. See, the judgment aspect of God the Father is not meant to be abstract and faceless, but relational and loving. And we saw this actually a few weeks ago when Jesus talked about being the true vine. He says, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. See, this pruning, this cutting back to grow more that God does in our lives, it's not born out of malice or anger or disappointment, but out of a desire for us to grow and grow faster and be better. And, be, and go beyond what we even think we can do. But we still struggle to see God's judgment as loving. And it's because so many of us have had fathers that weren't loving, that didn't have our best interests in mind. And regardless of whether we've had loving fathers or selfish fathers, and even if we had like fathers that we felt were perfect, or you think your dad's like Jack from This Is Us, we know that no father is perfect, that there's always a thing or two that you wish your father had done differently. And while we are certainly a product of the fathers that raised us, we can still find the example of what a father should be in God. See, a father is kind. He does not condescend to his children. He sets the example of kindness through daily interactions with everyone. A father is compassionate. He is slow to anger and quick to love. A father is faithful he is committed to his family, and they know his love and approval is not conditional. A father is forgiving. He does not hold the failures and missteps of his children over them. A father is a refuge. He is the safe place to rest, and he invites even those not in his family into that safety. A father is just. He does not show favoritism, but he sees the value in each of his children's strengths and weaknesses. But above all, a father is loving. His love for his family goes beyond his own needs, and he sees that they experience love in different ways than he does. Now, from what I can tell so far, it doesn't look like everyone here is a father. 
So how does this apply to you sometimes? Like, how can it feel that all this father talk applies to you if you're a mom? Or you're just a brand new father? Or maybe you're single or you're still a teenager? Well, let me start by reiterating this, which I've said multiple times. Our lives are shaped by our fathers, whether they're present or not. They've all messed up, every single one of them. And we have to recognize that some of them have done it in a way that is major, that has affected us deeply, so deeply that we might need professional help from a counselor to navigate the mess. While for other of us, it's just been little things. And then we can heal through good relationships with friends and godly partners. But what we can all find together is a comfort in our God, our true Father, and that we know that He has all of the things that we are missing. He loves us unconditionally. He will never abuse us. See, God will never shame us for our mistakes. He is not selfish with His time or love. He is not the Father that has caused you pain. He is the Father that wants to heal you, to restore you, and to make you whole. And no matter if you have a child or not, you can imitate these aspects of your Heavenly Father to those around you, and especially those younger than you. But what does all, knowing all this really matter? How do we put this into practice? How does this change our lives? Well, that depends on you and where you are at in your life. Some of you have kids. Some of you are teenagers. Some of you have lost your kids and your father, and so you feel stuck in the limbo. For me personally, it started in college, not really where I expected. I'd gotten in this, uh, involved in this Christian study group called Men's Fraternity. Not that kind of fraternity, a good one. This one was designed to help men of all ages look at their past, how they were raised, and how it's affecting them now, and see uh, how it affects the relationship with their father and their children, if they have any. Well, seeing as I was in college at this time without any kids, uh, I focused on my relationship with my dad. And they gave us this assignment. It was a semester-long thing, and at the end, we got a Christmas break, and they gave us this assignment, and they said, uh, go home, talk to your dads if they're still around, and tell them all the things that you loved about their raising you, you know, growing up with them, but then also explain to them all the ways that they hurt you. Easy stuff, you know. <laughs> so fortunately, I had a pretty good relationship with my dad. So... I told him how much I loved him and how I loved playing games with him and um, wrestling with him, all doing that kind of stuff. But then I had to, st to stop and say, you know, um, it was hard when he didn't say that he was proud of me very often, that he didn't tell me he loved me as often as I liked. And I, I kind of always felt like I had to strive to be better to please him. You know, it was the whole, like, great job, you did great on this, um, but here's how you could be better next time which I understood where it came from, but it always felt like I had to be better. Well, to my surprise, he took it really well, actually. And over the next few years, I saw him change in a way that I didn't really expect. He became fully invested in this men's fraternity program himself. And now, he does not miss a chance to tell the entire world, usually via Facebook, how proud he is of his son and how much he loves me. Uh, and I feel like that teenage kid again at a sporting event who's got that obnoxious parent who's <laughs> like, that's my son, isn't he awesome? And you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> but really, uh, I know deep down that I love it. You know, I love knowing that my father wants to shower love on me in the same way that our Heavenly Father has done for him and all of us. So what does it look like 
for you to be God the Father to your family and those around you? Well, for moms out there, these traits obviously don't only apply to men. This is the example that God has set for all of us. And we are called to be his example to our children. And some of you moms are having to be the mom and the dad. You are doing the work of two, and you have the opportunity to teach your kids about how God has shown you what a father truly is and what a father does. And please lean on us, your church family. Let us be your support. If we are failing you in that aspect, then tell us. We as a church need to be the ones better at supporting you. We don't need to be letting people fall through the cracks. For new or struggling fathers, which is pretty much every father at some point, ask God to show you what your family needs from you. Compare yourself to the aspects of God. See where you're struggling and ask him to help you be better. For single men and women, you have an amazing opportunity to be fatherly to the children in your neighborhood or just in your daily life. See, to those children, they often long for an adult just to show them some attention and care. For teenagers, there are so many kids that you know that are just a year or two younger than you that you may hang out with pretty often. And actually, those kids look up to you, especially if they're younger siblings. They look to you for how to, how to act. See, parents tell kids what to do, but they look for the example in those right above their age. For all of us, really, if we remain in God, opening up and trusting him with the hurts we have, he will show us really what a good father does. He's going to grow us in ways that we had never thought possible because we expected him to be like our earthly fathers. He will change us into something that looks like the embodiment of a loving father. Whether we have had that or not, we can still find that example in him. We're going to approach the communion table today as a space that God has created for us. Jesus himself said that his death has made a space for us in God's house, so we know what that means now. So we come to remember Jesus' death to be united with him and to be made one with God. At the meal Jesus shared with his followers the night before he was killed, he broke bread and gave it to us, saying, This bread is my body, broken for you. Eat it all. Later in the meal, he passed a cup of wine, saying, This wine is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it. We come to God's table today to be made one with God. We see in God the Father the true virtues that we need to flourish as a people. And we receive from God the grace to embody those virtues in this world. You don't have to be a member of Catalyst today to receive communion with us. If you are willing to pursue a oneness with God, to let God be your father, the true father, and to imitate your father in this world around you, you're welcome to come to the table with us this morning. Before we approach the table, though, I want to give you a time of reflective prayer. I want to put up a list up here of the qualities of a good father, the virtues that we see in God through Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes of silence to reflect, reflect prayerfully on this list. Where do you see these virtues in your life? What do you need to ask God for the grace to embody more fully? Who can you be a father to this week? After some space for your reflective prayer, I'll pray for us, and then as you're ready, you're welcome to approach the communion table.
Let's pray. God, our Father, you have gathered us here to be reminded what it means for us to confess that you are our Father. We have come with all sorts of images of fatherhood, good, bad, and ugly. We confess those images as idols that have kept us from knowing you fully as you call us to know you. We have heard in your scriptures and from your son Jesus what it means to call you Father. We ask that the virtues we have seen in you would become more manifest in our lives, whether we are fathers and mothers in flesh or in spirit. We pray we would all look more like you. We pray these wafers and juice become a spiritual food that we would receive the grace we need to be your image in a world that needs to know the virtues of your fatherhood. Lord, we offer these prayers and we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus.